Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Go Full Crypto Podcast. This is a special one because in this episode, we it's actually a crossover episode with the host of the Magic Internet Money Podcast, Brad Mills. Brad Murgakshi and I are all from Nova Scotia, and so we share that in common. Brad got into Bitcoin in about 2011 and has been with it ever since. And since he's been in it so long, he brings a range of valuable perspectives to the space of Bitcoin. So he's uh, got a very good finger on the pulse in terms of where Bitcoin's been, what's happening now, and where it could go in the future. He also brings a number of perspectives uh, from the socio-political, the macroeconomic, the microeconomic, and just the social implications of Bitcoin in general. So we really enjoyed filming this episode. We got to talk about each of our backgrounds and how we see Bitcoin affecting where we all came from, whether that be Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, Truro, Nova Scotia, or Pune, India. So we hope you enjoy this episode. You can also catch it on Brad's channel, the Magic Internet Money Podcast. Uh, that's on Spotify, Apple, Google. Uh, so we encourage you to go uh, like, subscribe, and, and rate and review Brad's podcast as well. And we hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you. The thoughts and opinions expressed by Keegan Francis, Murgakshi Palway, and the guests interviewed on the Go Full Crypto podcast are solely their own. The content discussed are intended to be for informational purposes only. Okay, welcome Brad Mills um, and, to and our, to us. To our mutually from our, produced episode. From the Magic Internet Money podcast. I was Googling Brad Mills just before you hopped on the call, and I didn't realize that there was a major baseball league coach and player named brad mills yeah and there's also an nhl player as well there's a couple of famous brad mills baseball players yeah so then we googled bitcoin brad and then you showed up (laughs) good good (laughs) why don't we why don't we start off with you and telling us about your bitcoin story how you were introduced to this magic internet money sure and let me also say for anybody who's listening to this on on my podcast welcome Maruga and Keegan. Um, was it? It's Murugakshi, right? Yeah, that's and, cool. But you're cool going with Maruga? Yeah. Because totally. I've been calling you that for a while. <laughs> It'd be rude if you weren't okay with that. But like- yeah, well, why don't we actually start about how we met? That's kind of fun. It is a fun story. So we interviewed Isaiah Jackson from Bitcoin and Black America, the author of Bitcoin and Black America. And I usually do sneak peeks when I'm merging the audio with the video on my Instagram feed. And I tagged Isaiah. And Brad, you followed Isaiah. So you saw the sneak peek of our interview on his Instagram story. And it was also like the 23rd hour or something. So it was one hour before it was going to. Yeah, it was right. It's right when it was going to expire. I was just randomly on Instagram. And I think he had um, put it on his story, maybe. Or no, a, no. I think he, he had, had put a screenshot that, you know, he was on GoFull Crypto. And I'm like, what's GoFull Crypto? So I, I looked at that and it was like just about to expire. And I saw it and I'm like, oh, what the heck? Halifax, Nova <laughs> Scotia. That's neat. So I. I started to look into you guys and i think we went on a uh yeah, a was, day or something before we, we we went on a nova scotia bitcoin meetup call where we first kind of met and i was talking to a bunch of bitcoiners in nova scotia which was fun hey brad uh what's nova scotia man <laughs> what's that place yeah not many people probably are aware of it it's the place where um ross or uh 
what's the guy Chandler from Friends woke up in a canoe. That's oh, like one what? of the one of the po- <laughs> one of the popular Nova Scotia references for like millennials is like from Friends. I had no idea. He Chandler talked about like waking up in a canoe in Nova Scotia or something like that, and everybody was like, "Yes, we made it." I thought you were gonna say Brad Pitt ended up in Nova Scotia in one of those apocalypse movies. Yeah, the end zombie of, apocalypse. It's yeah, the World War Z. Yeah, yeah. There's another one too. Nova Scotia Nova gets Scotia. some pretty cool references, and was Titanic a- was filmed in Nova Scotia. True. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, Nova Scotia. Halifax has a pretty booming. Uh, well, it used to be, anyways, a booming film industry. Yeah, that that ended a bit ago. Yeah. <laughs> we cut that tax credit. And, and Trailer Park Boys is pretty popular too. So a lot of people know Trailer Park Boys, and that's Nova Scotia. That's right, and it's an accurate depiction of everyone in Nova Scotia. Actually, it, it is, and it's like only the guns. The, it's everything but the guns. The guns was the thing that they kind of made up because everybody in Nova Scotia that lives in like poverty or whatever has always got some kind of side hustle or some kind of ridiculous scheme, and all these crazy sayings and sort of funny east canada slang way of talking and everything but nobody's using shooting you know each other shooting at each other with guns and stuff so accurate by, except for that by east canada we don't mean toronto or montreal either we actually mean that you have Two to provinces. keep going yeah. east there's actually more to canada than montreal and toronto which is cool yeah so that's how we met bitcoin meetup and then we just started chatting it was a pretty cool encounter yeah, I was really uh, interested in talking to you guys, not only because you're from Nova Scotia, but because I'm lately trying to think about mass adoption of Bitcoin. And I, I've been thinking about like all the people that I follow are typically like white men that are like millennials or Gen X's. And I'm like, this is not the accurate depiction of what <laughs> the next billion people coming into Bitcoin are going to be like. So I'm going to start trying to follow more women and more diverse cultures and stuff like that and see what everybody else thinks about Bitcoin because a Bitcoiners always talk about how Bitcoin is going to help the financially oppressed and all that stuff. So I'm like thinking, let's hear what everybody has to say that that uses Bitcoin for peer-to-peer transaction and escaping financial censorship and all those things. So over the last year and a half or two years, I've kind of made it a goal to try to like fill my feed up with more diverse Bitcoin voices. So when I saw you and I was like, wow, Murgakshi is like the epitome of like the next billion Bitcoiners. She's a woman and she's from India and but she lives in Nova Scotia. So like, <laughs> that's so cool. I got to follow her and see what she's saying. And and then, uh, you know, Keegan, sorry, I was, you know, you're just a white, white guy. Sorry, Keegan. Yeah, I can't do much about that. But you, but you, you're a redhead though, right? Uh, yeah, I do. I have some Irish in my blood and, uh, I, I married Mugakshi. So, I mean, that, that's gotta count for something here. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, you become diverse just by um, association. association. That's right. Yeah. And it was like, you know, I, I don't want to be just following people just for the sake of diversity. I, I want to follow people that have interesting things to say that have diverse opinions and, you know, grew up differently than most people here, uh, in, in Canada or in the U S or most Western places. So, yeah, it's been really interesting to like a lot of Bitcoiners that are at least active on Twitter. Um, they all kind of like have Bitcoin that unites all of us. But there's a bunch of other things that totally kind of like separate people and make them kind of like. I'm blocked by like probably 10 or 15 well-known <laughs> Bitcoiners because I have 
views on certain issues like taxation and COVID and Trump or whatever, like cer- certain issues where I don't, I'm not taking quite a, a like far, um, really principled on one side or not stance. I'm kind of in the middle on a lot of things, like I'm more of a centrist. So some of the Bitcoin maximalists that I really respect for their opinions on financial history and money and, and, and freedom and stuff like that kind of get triggered by when I'm saying things like, well, I don't mind, you know, I don't think they should enforce me and throw me in jail if I don't, but I don't mind wearing one. I think everybody should wear one for a while. And then like that triggers people. So they block me. So the idea that I think is, is cool to see more diverse voices and, and centrist sort of opinions about social and political issues kind of like get together um, because we don't want to have the next billion people coming into Bitcoin getting triggered and going off to altcoins or something because, oh, well, rainbows and unicorns over at Ethereum, um, they're, they're fine with wearing masks at, the, at Consensus and at the Ethereum Foundation. So I'm going to go follow them and buy ETH. So, so yeah, anyways, that's kind of a long rant about my... Uh, you finding more people to follow. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad that you did because this has been a fantastic relationship that we're building. And you said something about taxation and I want I want, I want to learn about what your opinions on taxation of Bitcoin are. And just for some personal context, every time I look at my portfolio or I'm thinking that, oh, cool, that's a 20% gain on my portfolio. And I'm thinking, wait, 50%, I'm going to be taxed on 15% to 50% of that or 25% on 50% of that. And it's just like, oh, how much of this money am I actually keeping? Not that I don't like paying taxes, but the other time we interviewed this guy called Dan Clark and he uh, he doesn't have to pay anything on capital gains in Singapore. Oh, and nice. he doesn't have to worry at all. He gets to keep all of his gains. At the end of the year, he still has to pay taxes, but it's you know one bill, one simple calculation. There's not a lot of, oh, we want to know exactly everything that you've made um, in the last year with your gains in crypto. So what is your opinion? Well, I've had this discussion a couple of times on my podcast with people who've had different views. Um, Ansel Lindner is one of the Bitcoin kind of, I guess you call him a maximalist or whatever, but a Bitcoiner that that I really respect, and he's a constitutionalist and a free markets guy. So a constitutionalist is like a libertarian, but you know, so a libertarian is like property rights, um, freedom to do whatever you want as long as you're not infringing on the rights of someone else. Right. So that like our libertarian doesn't believe that the st- that the federal government should get involved in things like um, abortion or gun rights or um, anything like that. It should be left up to people to figure it out for themselves. And they just don't believe that tax money should pay for things that it should be left up to the local or, you know, the more local communities to figure out. So it's more about like bringing the governance down to like your local level, local level. And on the personal side, you should be able to go and grow marijuana. If you want to smoke marijuana, you should be allowed to do that. You're not hurting anybody. So that's a libertarian, pretty much. I mean, libertarians are typically anti-war. They 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 kind of rally against taxes and central banking because the most of a lot of the money that comes from, comes in from taxation goes to fund war and like bomb people, and that's not that's that's like totally antithetical to the values of freedom and liberty and and all that. So constitutionalists are kind of like they go more towards the extreme end of it where 
they they typically think more along the lines of like taxation is antithetical to the founding of the United States and a constant the constitution kind of doesn't say that you should be taxed the constitution has no concept of taxation without representation like that was the reason why they um had the revolution in the first place so constitutionalists also are very um they they like very believe very much in the fourth amendment the right to bear arms and the concept of militias and militias are more the same way that um governance should be taken down to the local level they believe that like the police system should be taken into the local community level as well based on militias so the concept of a militia when we think about it now it kind of has a, a negative connotation you think oh a militia it's like a bunch of crazy people with guns like going around causing chaos thinking about the mob yeah but yeah. the the concept of a militia in the constitution is that it, it it prevents what we see in the last you know 20 years in the united states where it has become a police state that kind of preys on minorities and has this corrupt um disconnection between the local communities that the police serve and the police officers because they don't even typically live in the same cities so they don't have that local connection to the people and the the people kind of fear have grown, grown to fear the police because the police are actually tax collectors like they're armed tax collectors they they are out there to try to like find people for jaywalking or speeding or doing some kind of breaking some kind of local municipal law to fund the city and it's it's also the US has also got this for-profit prison system which is pretty corrupt and we can just see based on the drug laws and and all the uh, militarization of the police and everything that this concept of bringing the um, protection of the citizens down into the local level would make a lot of sense because then the the police officers whatever you want to call them the militia members or whatever they would be living in the city and they would like have more connection to the people in the town so there would be less dehumanization of people from cops that are like preying on minorities and you'd have a lot of people that would be more qualified to be police you know in that community so a constitutionalist while i'm not a constitutionalist i really kind of sympathize with concept it seems to make a lot of sense and on the taxation side they believe that like taxation should be at the local level so they're super into bitcoin because they think that bitcoin takes away the the ability for the government to enforce taxation so with bitcoin they it's just like bittorrent they can't it's illegal to stream movies to download movies on bittorrent but so many people just do it that they can't enforce it so Bitcoin kind of like allows if you believe in taxation as theft and that it's an infringement of your rights and all that well Bitcoin is an option for people to be able to avoid paying taxes because you can have your financial privacy and there's no surveillance really if you acquire your Bitcoin properly and if you use it properly so I don't personally believe that I shouldn't pay any taxes but a constitutionalist might think that and Bitcoin kind of is good for that because they it may, if everybody's using Bitcoin, they taxation it brings it back to voluntary taxation because you'd have to like volunteer to pay taxes rather than being forced. Because the I heard this this quote one time: it was that your bank account is a is a three way multi sig between you, the bank, and the government. Where yeah, 
you know, the bank and the government can collude and freeze your bank account or, or take your money if they need to. And uh, that's obviously not the case with Bitcoin. Yeah. And, and typically it's like a three-way relationship too. It's like you're either free or you're in jail or you're kind yeah. of like in the middle, like trying to do things under the table. And yeah. that's what in the East Coast, like under the table, like that is just the culturally way to do things. Like you just operate in cash and you, oh, at least when I was growing up, like people had tons, tons of people had businesses and they just operate in cash and, and then you don't report that on pogey, you know, while you're doing under the, under the table work. So economies can work like that. Certain, certain areas of the, of the economy can run. But they do work like that, like all over That's, the world. My grandfather would give me 10 bucks to go clean the, uh, clean the car, give the car a, a car wash, for example. It's like, okay, that's child labor. And I didn't report that 10 bucks. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, but that's super normal, right? Like no one's going to bat an eye at that. Uh, I think there's like a, a scale as well. So like if he was giving me a thousand bucks, then maybe the government would start to care because, you know, whatever the taxation on that is, it's a little bit more significant than the 10 bucks. But Anyway, I digress. I think you had a question then, Murga. No, no, I didn't. I just, I didn't know that, that there was, there was this East Coast culture of under the table stuff. I was not aware. I, I thought I escaped that from India, but obviously India is a pretty populated country. I saw, I saw it everywhere. In India? In India, it takes yeah. place. And it's, it's harder to see here, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And in the East Coast, like, especially in Cape Breton, it's more of a bigger thing because the, the unemployment rate in Cape Breton is pretty high. So Cape Breton, for people who don't know, is like a small island that makes up a good percentage of Nova Scotia, but it's kind of connected by a bridge and it's kind of an independent area. It's more like Prince Edward Island, which is another small province. So that's where I'm from, Cape Breton. And Cape Bretoners look at mainlanders like Nova <laughs> Scotians look at like people from Toronto. Like growing up, we were like, the people from Halifax are the other. Like they're not, they're, we're not the same. You know, <laughs> it's so funny. The more you zoom out, the more weird like connected or actually the, the the closer you zoom in the least connected it is you know whatever I'm i know what to say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah which part of cape Breton? just just uh i mean I, I grew up all around the island but mostly sydney area like industrial cape Breton area nice i've moved around like probably 11 or 12 times in different different areas growing up a few times that's that it, it was, yeah. All of Cape Breton is so beautiful. You must have got to experience a lot of different nice little places around the, the island. Yeah, if we can take a moment to just chill <laughs> Cape Breton for a moment. It's a great tourist location, okay? You can check out the Cabot Trail in the summer, in the fall. Like, the leaves all turn colors. It's a Yeah, go there. And Brad Mills is going to <laughs> accelerate the adoption of Bitcoin in Cape Breton. That's I remember that was one of your goals. I would love to do that. That would be so fun to get Cape Bretoners using Bitcoin. I think it's perfect for Bitcoin because there's a deep distrust of government in uh, in, Can in the east coast of Canada because Cape Breton kind of has been shafted by the rest of Canada. Like there's there's this thing in Canada, equalization payments, where the rich provinces have to pay billions of dollars to the poorer provinces. And... Alberta is paying, has been historically paying most of the equalization payments, and they go to country uh, provinces like uh, Newfoundland and Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island, and they've generated most of the revenue from like the oil markets. But now there's this big sort of like socialist progressive movement away from oil, and Alberta's economy is getting wrecked. 
And, um, you know, there's this big pipeline project that the NDP party and the liberals and um, most younger people just don't want to see that get built. But unfortunately, that is destroying the economy of Alberta. So they're going to actually start needing equalization payments soon, which is going to be crazy because they were the ones providing most of the stimulus to con- to provinces like Cape, like uh, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward and uh, Prince Edward Island and, and Newfoundland. But even when you zoom into that, like Cape Breton has been treated extremely unfairly at the provincial level by the representatives in Halifax because um, the hundreds of millions of dollars that get given to Nova Scotia, I think it's 90% of it gets funneled into like the Halifax area. And Cape Breton gets like a real pittance for what it should get compared to the size of the population of Cape Breton. So that that's created a lot of wealth disparity in Cape Breton. And I grew up like in poverty. I was living in, uh, you know, we are on welfare and I was living in government housing and stuff. And the culture that I grew up with was like, screw the man, screw the government, like just do what you want. And, but it was in a good way. It was like, people would learn how to like, uh, write books or or write plays or perform plays or or music. Everybody's musical home. So in a way, it was good because culturally, it's pretty awesome. Um, but that also just makes it so great for Bitcoin because it's kind of like the same wavelength of it's decentralized. There is no person or, co- or government in charge of it, and you're taking your own sovereignty back. Like you're 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 responsible for your own future financially. So I would love to somehow accelerate the adoption of Bitcoin in Cape Breton. It'd be great. That that does sound, sound pretty awesome. Um, okay, so coming back- Wait, let me ask you, what was it like in, in India growing up with taxes and with the under underground markets and stuff? Uh, I am unable to answer that because I didn't know much about it, hear much about it. I moved here when I was- almost when I was turning 19. And then uh, for like most of my life, I was not really told about what my parents did for. <laughs> um, but like, I just wasn't aware of the financial ecosystem. And mm-hmm. a lot of my teenagers, I didn't care. So I didn't, I wasn't curious enough to learn about it. And now that I moved here, I do see just by being here, and then my parents are still in India. So I've firsthand experienced the pain that it is to transfer money across borders. Um, even though it's a, even even small sums or large sums, it just there's so much disparity in um, treatment of uh, times and also fees and also people like status. Um, so Bitcoin has been, um, for me personally, it has been uncovering a lot of layers of disparity and um corruption like, right, corru- corruption as well but also status plays that i wasn't what do you mean, what do you mean by that status well a preferential treatment right like i grew up in a middle class family i if i was to go to the bank i mean i have been at the bank in india and i've sat in the bank for like hours to get um to just to be seen i don't know if i can say much about that because uh, much to the status play for that but I, i've seen people come in cars go and then go to this private office just because they're wealthier than i am and then they get serviced immediately or they don't even have to go to the bank they can just call someone and whatever they want gets taken care of immediately 
but that's not the treatment that is given to most of India, a majority. And in a like in a country that has what one point three billion people, nailed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah one point three. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I, I switched it between one point three and one point seven. One time I said two point one. So. billion people, a majority of people just do not get um, fair treatment when it comes to money, their money, keeping their money, moving their money, getting access to using their money for other things. It's, yeah, like there's, you know, we've talked about the unbanked where people don't have access to financial services, but when you're in a developing nation and you do have access to financial services, you still face uh, unfair treatment because of your status. And when you were growing up, did you like, did your friends and you use like apps, like payment apps and stuff? Or when you were going to like just cash? It was mostly cash. I didn't use a card. When I got a card, I think I was 17, uh, 17 or 18. And it was a debit card. But like, I would say a majority of the transactions that we made were via cash. Have you ever read the book, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia? No, I haven't. Who's it by? Ooh, it's a really good book. I can't remember who it's by, but I, I'd recommend everybody check that out. It gives like such a interesting perspective of the la- you know, the, the 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 development of India over the last 40, 50 years or whatever. Um it's like I think it takes place actually in Pakistan, but it takes place in that area. And it's it describes the way of life for an entrepreneur who's trying to like become rich and all of the crazy stuff that he faces of like having to bribe people all the time and like mm-hmm. having to hire personal security and like the whole concept of like falling in love with a woman that's not really loves that doesn't really love him because it's like a weird cultural thing to just expect to have a wife. And it's just like such a an interesting like um experience to live through this person that is trying to get rich in this area during this time. So, I mean, I recommend everybody that's like looking to get kind of like a different perspective on life to check that book out because it's, it's so interesting. Religion. You, you, while you were saying that, I also just remembered that religion is another layer um, that is important to like if you're born into the wrong religion or you bo- you're born into the wrong caste, then you get worse treatment, if, like worse than normal treatment because you don't belong to an accepted religion. And really, yeah, when you said that the expectation of having a wife uh, or expectation of living this certain life that was designed for you before you were even born, it's kind of um. It's yeah. I think it's just culture that oh, you're, you're you're born a man, and then you have to get married by the time you're 25, 27. If you're a woman, you have to get married by the time you're 23, 24. Have kids because you gotta you know live the responsibility of producing children. Um, and then it, yeah, just gender wise as well. So I think that status is can be broken down into many layers of okay, what religion are you? What what religion do you follow? What sort of province are you from? Because there is um, disparity between treatment for people from different provinces or states, as you call it in India as well. And then are you a male or are you a female? Um, so <laughs> was it were, were those kind of the reasons why you came to Canada? Because there was all these expectations on you or was it some other reason? 
Um, well, for me, it was just lack of freedom. I, it wasn't related to finances for me personally. I was just fed up of not being able to live the kind of life I imagined for myself in India. I had to be home at a certain point in time because, you know, if I'm driving home late at night, I could be chased by somebody else in a car seeing that I'm an, like a, a woman who is by herself. So I just had so many restrictions on the things that I wanted to do. I couldn't travel by myself uh, to different parts of India just because as a woman. And you will hear people have a di different opinion on this too. They'll say that, oh, I did it anyway. Um, but my parents were sort of protective in that sense because they grew up in regions and they grew up around news where it really wasn't safe for me. So I just, I felt super restricted in my freedom to do anything that I wanted to do in India. And what, what was it like when you first came here? Was it kind of like overwhelmingly cool or was it also kind of scary or what? Well, I had visited Canada before, so it, it's not like... Um, I hadn't seen the lifestyle here and well, Nova Scotia was, I have to say, very different from any country I had <laughs> ever visited. Oh my gosh. It just, it blew my mind for the first time ever. I had, I came from a city, Pune, which has a population of what, 17 million? Uh, you, you, you consistently overestimate that one. It's, it's, it's four, about four. Four, four million. million. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's like eight billion people that live there. <laughs> okay, so I came from a city that so, had... So, so I got to remember, when you when you say Bitcoin can go to like 200,000, I got to think a little lower when you're estimating. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, it's going to 100, 200, hot, 300. Hot. Oh, gosh. And then Wolfville was what? 5,000 people. Yeah, so Wolfville is home to Acadia University, which that's is where I went where to university. We both went to the school. And, you did too, yeah. Yeah, so 4 million to a population of like <laughs> 5,000 in the, in the school year, it swells to like 10 or 15,000. Yeah. Did you, ha, have you, um, Keegan, have you ever gone back to like, do you have family in Ireland or just like your lineage is from Ireland? No, we're from Truro, which is another <laughs> place in Nova Scotia. And mine, basically, my entire family's in just spread out over Nova Scotia and that's my entire heritage. Uh, I have something really funny to share. This share is it. totally not related to Bitcoin, but when I became a citizen last year and I had, during my citizenship interview, she knew that we were common law because that put down, we were common law at the time. And uh, she said, so where's your partner from? And I said, Truro. <laughs> and she burst out laughing and just like, seriously, that is, <laughs> hilarious and like she it wasn't in a very like oh cool you found someone from like you are an immigrant from india who's dating someone from truro <laughs> where was this at where was the ceremony at oh well the ceremony was at acadia university mine oh, was okay. different no no the interview was different um the interview was before the ceremony and that was just an alphax oh an alphax okay that's funny yeah. Yeah. I just say I'm from Halifax. It's easier. Yeah. I get to like hide that part of my life, but now it's out there for the world to know that I'm from Truro. But you, uh, like I, I, as a Cape Bretoner, I don't really know the difference between Halifax and Truro. Okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah. We're like the ugly yellow, younger brother of, of Halifax. Uh, we get looked down upon a lot in Truro. People have this there. Well, okay. For tra Trailer Park Boys, we mentioned Trailer Park Boys earlier today. It's filmed in Truro. Okay. And we were actually kind of joking. Not all Nova Scotians are like the trailer park boys, especially in Halifax. You've kind of got like a Toronto-esque kind of culture in uh, in Halifax, uh, I would say downtown. But the trailer park boys and Truro are one and the same thing. 
You walk <laughs> down the street and that's exactly who you see walking next to you. So, well, speaking of Truro, we were at your parents' place the other weekend. Your mom was telling us about how one of her friends, um, so a husband and wife, and the, the wife earns more than the husband and they wanted to get a loan for their new house. But she couldn't go to sign the loan without her husband. Mm. That was bonkers. Oh, yeah. Well, because women shouldn't be able to use money. (laughs) Duh. (laughs) And like to make matters worse, even when they did go in and sign the loan, the loan doesn't show up on her account. It shows up on his account, even though she has the higher higher income and she's the one who's sort of got approved the loan. So I like income disparity and um, preferential treatment to people based on their status and how much they earn and what their gender gender, is. It's everywhere. It's throughout the world. Yeah. I thought I was escaping it in India when you asked me earlier to talk about it, but it still exists. And what is like, what has your experience been Brad with respect to being treated unfairly? Um, I didn't like the same as kind of what you said, where I didn't really pay, you didn't really pay attention to it as the younger person. I didn't really know that I was poor, you know, like I, I kind of knew I was poor, but the, you know, the, the focus around having a side hustle and like just enjoying life and playing, you know, going outside and playing or like learning an instrument or trying to, create something or do something everybody there's always kitchen parties and house parties around like my dad is such a great musician and all my family members are musicians and stuff so it was just surrounded by a lot of like fun and and laughter and stuff but I wasn't paying attention to the money either it was just I was making money actually because I was like I had the side hustle as a kid and I was I was making hundreds of dollars like as a kid and I would just buy Christmas presents with it every year. My grandmother would take me shopping and I just buy Christmas presents. I thought, Oh, this is so fun. I get to like spend money on people. Um, I didn't really notice it. So, so growing up, it was more like when I came to Toronto, I, I noticed there was like a, a, a prejudice against me as an East coaster. Like oh, when was that? When did you Toronto? came to Toronto? When I was like 22 or something like that or 23. Right. And I remember one time, one of my teachers at school like made a comment like stupid like that or stupid Cape Bretoner or something like that. It was like some kind of dumb, like stereotypical like comments. And I was just like, wow, this is nuts. Like people actually have these misconceptions and and they're willing to say them. So then, you know, little things like that kind of make me more empathetic towards social issues that other people are facing. Cause I mean, I've experienced a little bit of it, but I pretty much let everything roll off my back and I'm not living in a place where I'm like the religion that everybody's um, against or like the sex or the, the color or whatever. So growing up, it was more uh, like growing, growing into becoming like an adult. It was more about trying to like shed those, those like preconceptions I had about, well, since nobody's sexist to me, then what people are complaining about as sexism just probably doesn't really exist the way they say. So trying to like take in people's experiences more. And I mean, even in the last few years, it's been tough for me to confront my, my like cognitive dissonances about all that stuff, but I always try to be more empathetic 
and uh, try to relate to people more. Um, because it's funny, one of the things that I really do believe that as Bitcoiners, we're going to control a lot of the resources in the next 10 years. True. And we're going to have to be leaders and we're going to have a lot of responsibility and we're going to have to like invest in everything. Like things, I think that Bitcoiners will control a lot of significant resources. And I would, I want to encourage Bitcoiners to be more empathetic leaders and embrace diversity. And yeah, I got a question on that, Brad. Um, This is actually something that keeps me up at night sometimes. And it's, uh, it's the fact that not, uh, not every Bitcoiner is, uh, has this kind of compassion built into them. Like there's, there's bad people out there. Like Bitcoin's just a tool. It's not a good thing. It's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's a, it's a thing that good people and bad people use. Like, how do you come to terms with the fact that there's a lot of people in the world that uh, that would do harm to others that actually own Bitcoin? So you just said that uh, Bitcoiners will have or control a lot of the resources, and that's simply because Bitcoin's going to the moon. Now, when it moons, like then they've got suddenly a lot more power or autonomy to uh, to influence either for uh, positive or negative reasons. Is that something that you that also keeps you up at night or something similar? Well, it doesn't keep me up at night, but I do think about it. And that's why I think that the only solution to that, because you're right, like w- when I started to think about it, I was thinking like, oh, this is awesome. Like Bitcoiners, when has there ever been a history, a, a point in history when the power class is anti-authoritarian and anti-war and, you know, anti-waste and like pro-freedom and they, they have like, when has there ever been a time in history when cypherpunks and like people that value freedom and stuff have risen up and become the power class because of their political and like philosophical beliefs. So the Bitcoin, the people that are Bitcoin rich are mostly people that have like strong beliefs about Austrian economics and the free market and, you know, libertarianism, which I believe libertarianism is an amazing um, framework for people because it's all about like allow people to do whatever the hell they want. As long as you're not hurting somebody, allow people to do it and don't be throwing people in jail because they smoke drugs or because, you know, they didn't wear a mask. Like a lot of Bitcoiners are like anti-maskers, which is crazy, but I mean, it's not crazy. So I shouldn't say that it's, it's a strong belief about freedom and someone that's coming into it thinking like, Oh, why is this Bitcoiner saying all this stuff about masks? Like, don't do they not care about people like do they not care that they're going to spread covid and that's the way people will take it but really the bitcoiner guy that's like raging against masks is doing it because they believe that it's a slippery slope to the total surveillance and control of your thoughts and your money and everything so people that have the libertarian perspective are are really principled in that they respect free promote sovereignty and liberty and all these great things but that can come to a point where it can become extremist and it can blind you to things that are are more like needed like healthcare is <laughs> a perfect example yes. so growing up in canada we have free healthcare and it's amazing i mean it's better in other countries like australia has a better system where they've got a private care a private and a public healthcare system. So 
if you aren't satisfied with the public health care, you can pay extra to get access to the private system. I think that's the way to, to go. But there's a safety net for anybody in Canada and you don't have the mental stress and you don't have medical bankruptcies and you don't have like people being left to die because they can't they don't have the their ID or whatever. Like Canada is awesome for the social safety nets. Of course, it can be abused, but it's just an example of how being too uh, far down a certain path can kind of lead to more suffering. So I, I am a Canadian libertarian, Bitcoin lover, investor, empathetic, you know, like I have all these things I label myself. I just think that if this happens in this kind of next 10 years where all the, the people that pass the litmus tests of value, which is Bitcoin, if, if the people test and they hold Bitcoin and they then, and they're all like markets. Brad, Brad, sorry. I'm going to ask you to pause right here. In the last uh, minute or so, every couple of words, the audio sort of broke or stopped. So we didn't catch the words. Oh, okay. I will re say that last minute. Um, <laughs> so if it goes, if history plays out that Bitcoiners do become the power class and say Bitcoin does absorb as a black hole, it absorbs all this wealth from all these different asset classes and Bitcoin goes to a million or two million or 10 million or whatever the number is because fiat will fail and Bitcoin will be adopted as a reserve currency. If that happens, it's mostly the people who passed the litmus test and saw the value of Bitcoin for the decentralized cypherpunk values and, and you know, um, principles. So that gives me hope that the people that are holding the wealth in Bitcoin are mostly, or at least like for at some point, they have some sort of like philosophical reason for wanting Bitcoin. Right. And I know there's a lot of, say, raccoons, I think is a, is a popular term that people will use, like Wall Street raccoons, where they just want more money and they'll just, when they get it, they get a billion dollars, they'll just go to the next garbage can and knock it over and just keep eating, you know, keep trying to get more money. Of course, there's going to be people like that that hold Bitcoin. But as a, a general um, group, I think that Bitcoiners espouse really good, positive, liberal, democ democratic values. And I do worry a little bit that like some of the people I see on Bitcoin Twitter are kind of like, you know, they have ideas that are a bit, a bit uh, not so empathetic, we'll say. Or maybe they think really strongly that there shouldn't be a public safety net for healthcare. And I would hate to see like people um, control everybody's, you know, lives that don't respect the, the idea that someone should have a social safety net for, for healthcare, but they make great points that most of the taxes that come in aren't going for that. It's going for war and stuff. So, I mean, I'm not, I don't, doesn't ever keep me up at night. I do get concerned sometimes when I think about some of the people that have Bitcoin, maybe they're not the type of person that I'd want to lead me. Um, but that's what I'm trying to do my best to just be a positive example for other Bitcoiners and for, for, for yeah. 
Yeah, because you can be a leader. We can be leaders. You, you are a leader. True. So are you, and so are you. <laughs> so are you who's listening. That's right. That's kind of the point of this whole damn thing. Uh, you, you touched on a lot of concepts, and uh, I just want to throw out the, the word or the label that kind of describes what you're talking about. Just uh, Bitcoin, the black hole that sucks up the, uh, the asset classes, whether it be gold or real estate or um, countries start adopting it. Like in the Bitcoin world, we call that Bitcoin hyper, hyper Bitcoinization. Right. And I'm wondering if you have some thoughts on on just what that looks like expanded beyond what what kind of words you just use to label it and, and talk about it. Well, I, I believe that it's possible that Bitcoin happens to suck in a lot of the value. See, a lot of people will conflate that with meaning that Bitcoin has to like replace the dollar or it has to be a revolution where it's like a violent uprising and we take the power away from the banks. Physically, I don't want that. I don't want that. I no, want I don't. Th don't think a lot of people would want that. Like, I think that it's if it happens, it'll just happen naturally, and I don't think it'll be like an all of a sudden thing. I I think it'll just like we've been seeing, um, more and more people will start to get Bitcoin, and then as Bitcoin becomes used as a store of value, then the dollar continues to get printed away all the countries that are printing like crazy, which is nearly all of them, are going to start needing to switch to a more stable unit of account. And if Bitcoin has sucked in tens of trillions of dollars in value because of capital flight from all these inflating assets, then Bitcoin will become the stable unit of value at a million or whatever it is. And then it'll just naturally, you know, businesses will build up around it to be able to do collateralization of your Bitcoin and build on uh, you know second layers of Bitcoin to use Bitcoin as money. Like Ruga, you were saying that you as a, as an Indian, you you see the value of being able to use Bitcoin to send money back to your parents or to have them send money to you or whatever it is. That's just like the natural thing I think will happen. It'll just be more of that. Like companies like Strike that are building out these global peer-to-peer -peer settlement apps and stuff on top of Bitcoin. I just think more and more of that's going to happen. And it'll just be like a, a natural evolution of money that's internet native and global without any borders. And um, yeah, it'll just like companies will just continue to build amazing products and services on top of Bitcoin using it as the, as the, uh, the denominator. Yeah, we're going to have to build a lot more on top of that because in the past week I've been reading news and actually a very recent experience where someone that we know lost their 12-word phrase. And there was a little bit of, um, I think, a questioning of, oh, who's, whose responsibility was it to make sure that the this 12-word backup phrase was taken care of properly because there was no shared risk, right? When you own your Bitcoin, when you have it on your on your wallet, that's 100% your responsibility. You are accountable for keeping it safe. And I think that we have shared the risk of accountability of keeping our money safe, whatever that means with the bank for so long that I, I do believe that decades ago, when, when we did trust the bank to keep our money safe, there was something to be said about that safety. But now that, that the word safe, like, oh, your money's bank at the safe, your money is safe at the bank. That phrase means com something completely different right now than it did 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And when we shift to Bitcoin, I think it's also going to have to be a shift in mindset change for every single person who comes into 
the Bitcoin sphere because they have to learn to be more accountable towards their own money and their own finances. And that's just some a skill that I think we've lost over the years in so many, so many people. I'm a fan of having options. Like I, I, I do try to get everybody to like own their own keys and protect their own wealth and take their own financial sovereignty. But not everybody is kind of like ready for that. So I, I think like in 2013, 14, it was a bit more scary to leave your coins on exchanges. Today, it's not as scary because there's a lot of like professional, like institutionalized ways to store your cryptocurrency, your Bitcoin on a custodial exchange. Like you can get an account at, um, say, Gemini Custody or something like that, or I don't know, Prime Trust or or like any of these custodians where you know you're not owning your bitcoin but it's it's more likely that that they're going to be okay with holding it for you um so in terms of the average person who's not really concerned with privacy or not really concerned with like the government turning against bitcoin or if they're not in a country where the government has turned against bitcoin like in india where they've tried to make it illegal for a while and recently kind of like that's been overturned or challenged at the supreme court level yeah it's but, legal now yeah, so so like it was probably scary to hold Bitcoin in an Indian custodial exchange because the the government was against it. Yeah. So for sure that's like got to change and it is thankfully. Um can So I'm not imagine, Sorry, just a tangent. Can you imagine um a time like what 25 years ago when the internet was being commercialized, the government coming down and saying no, you cannot use the <laughs> internet. It's illegal. You cannot access information. You cannot transfer information. You cannot. Like if we catch you sending an email, then uh, you know that's it. That's five years in prison and a uh, three thousand dollar fine. We're gonna confiscate your access to electricity. <laughs> and you're gonna go on the record for using the internet. Well, that that kind of did happen with the censors with the encryption in the '90s. They tried to ban encryption because encryption encryption was kind of like used by governments and intelligence agencies to protect secrets and communicate with agents in in the field and it was considered like a, a a weapon like they tried to classify encryption as a weapon and and in the 90s the cypherpunk movement was born to try to protect freedom of speech and make the case that encryption is is speech like code is speech and encryption is code so it's just free speech so they would do things like print a small encryption algorithm or something on a t-shirt and go through the airport and then they're basically smuggling arms if if so they were making the case that if you th if you're going to classify encryption as an arms or as a weapon then look how stupid this is i'm going to i'm smuggling arms by wearing an encryption t-shirt and they would do these these activist movement things like that and get a you know make their point that encryption is not a weapon encryption is a way to protect privacy and free speech and another thing they would do is like print out the encryption algorithms in in textbooks and send them to universities in the UK and then if the if the US government would try to like steal those books or stop the transfer of the books and the sending of the books then it would become like a they could take them to the supreme court and argue against like freedom of speech so i'm so glad that those people exist oh yeah and and those are the people that built the foundational technology that bitcoin is based on it's right. the cypherpunks 
that continue to still hold the torch of of uh, encryption and freedom of speech and freedom of freedom from surveillance and privacy, the right to have your own privacy. So in a way, they did right. try to do it in the past with encryption, not yet, not with the Internet, but with keeping yourself, keeping your messages private going, mm-hmm. you know, so we may see it again, which is why Bitcoin privacy is important. It is. Yeah. And I was just thinking when you were saying that about encryption, that Bitcoin, Keegan, you said earlier that it, it's a tool and we all know that it can be used as a shield and it can be used as a weapon. It's a weapon against capital control, uh, a weapon that can be used against authorities. And it's a shield also against the same authorities who want to exercise capital controls over you as an individual or a corporation. So Bitcoin is quite the versatile tool, but at the end of the day, it still is a protection of your wealth and it just gives you the ability to have your own self-sovereign hard money, which is pretty cool. What do your parents think, Maruga, about you being in Bitcoin and all that stuff? When it was like when it was illegal in, in <laughs> India and you're over in Canada talking about Bitcoin with a podcast and stuff, what were they thinking? <laughs> Well, my my dad, so I'm blessed to have progressive parents. I really am. Uh, and my dad is the guy who did most of the money stuff. And when he heard that I was doing things in Bitcoin, the first thing he just said was, just be careful that you're not doing anything illegal. And then he started reading about it. And he's like, okay, buy more Bitcoin. <laughs> he started telling his, his friends that you, like friends that are, we're very wealthy, okay? They can spare 1% of their um, investments into Bitcoin. He started talking about it with them and they're like, no, Manoj, you're, I don't know what's gotten into you. It's probably and your daughter. And your daughter. <laughs> so, so, my, so my dad is this, I've talked about him in some of our episodes or this podcast. He is very progressive in the sense that when the internet came out, he went out and told everyone, guys, this is the next big thing. The first greatest invention was uh, the wheel. Second was fire. Third is internet. This is going to change the world. And people really didn't bat an eye when he was saying that. And then when Bitcoin came out and he read about it, he's like, this is the fourth. (laughs) After internet, Bitcoin is the next greatest invention. And people still aren't listening to him. You know, some some are converting, but like at a very small rate of uh, conversion. That's cool to hear. Yeah, so my dad's completely for Bitcoin. So like he was just like, yeah, let's next year let me see if I can move some investments around. Let's see if we can buy more Bitcoin. And like, awesome, Dad. Yes, <laughs> pretty cool. That's Your awesome. mom too. She's converted now. Yeah, true. I've been harping on my parents. So I've been in Bitcoin since 2013 and investing since 2015. Took me two years to get on the train. Scratching my head there, but since then I've been just like pushing it on my parents and my family members and my mom is apparently the only one that's really like got it you know and bitcoiners will know when i say they she got it and she's like okay she's a bitcoiner now she talks she about is it. She oh talks about it with her friends she shares more bitcoin articles on facebook, facebook. Oh. that's awesome responsible for like a quarter of our referrals <laughs> at this point. She's, uh, she's doing great i paid her rent in bitcoin uh, in 2017 and i wrote a, a newsletter about this uh, actually it's dropping whenever but uh it, you have to kind of experience one of those those cycles, those 40x cycles, and then the 80% drop in order. Yeah. Like that really helps people understand and get it. We've talked about how our parents took it and how we were introduced to Bitcoin, Brad. But tell us your origin story um, with respect to discovering Bitcoin. Uh, well, you know, it was kind of. Um 
Hold on, let me answer that Keegan's question, then I'll get into that. <laughs> well, what's Keegan? Well, I can answer it both. Actually, I'll answer it in one because yeah, two birds stoned at once. Yeah, I'll get two, <laughs> two birds stoned at once. That's Trailer Park Boys for for anyone yeah. who doesn't know. So the first the first forty x or whatever cycle, and then subsequent massive drop that I experienced was in two thousand eleven because I was coming out of. Um, just having made some money with my my business that I was running, I was making apps, Facebook games, and I had made some money. And I was the f- first time I was making money, and I was thinking, what do I do with this stuff? Uh, I guess I'll Google like, what do I invest in or whatever, because my business was kicking off cash, and I was, I had seen the 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 kind of like eye opening. Um, experience of Ron Paul's 2008 presidential campaign. So I started to listen to him talk about freedom, um, mostly about anti-war. Like that's what kind of got me into it, the anti-war stuff and, and the Fed stuff. When he was starting to talk about how the Federal Reserve is actually causing most of the wealth inequality and causes most of the problems and uh, most of the most of the financial bubbles that happen are actually caused by the federal reserve and the money printers and that the national debt is just going to never get paid back. And it's going to keep growing and the dollar itself is going to lose value. So buy gold, like that was kind of like his message, like get into assets like gold because they won't stop printing the money and nobody even knows how much money there is because they won't let us audit the fed. So his mission was all about like, let's audit the federal reserve and let's see how much money there is because they won't tell us. And Occupy Wall Street was in 2008-9 or whatever. And that was kind of like a lot of the Occupy Wall Street movement was supporting Ron Paul's audit the Fed and end the Fed movement. And he had a really strong anti-war message. And he was calling out a lot of BS that was happening with both parties, the, the Republicans and the Democrats, supporting things like the militarization of the police and sending people to jail for the corrupt like drug laws that was costing the state tons of money and ruining tons of people's lives so i came into um some money with my entrepreneurship you know path and it was fresh in my mind of ron paul's message about the dollar and uh so i started to look into gold thinking about how do i get some gold and when i was doing that someone was talking about bitcoin on youtube and i'm like digital gold what this is amazing of course i want to do that <laughs> i want to get some of that stuff because i was you know i'm an early technology adopter and love to mess around with technology so it was really did you believe it right away because oh yeah yeah you just got it you're like oh. i didn't you know i didn't i didn't read the white paper i just saw digital gold and i'm like this is this is going to be massive like of course the only thing that hasn't been disrupted by the internet so far is money. Of course, this is going to be huge. Nice. Yeah. So I was like coming from being a game designer or whatever for this, for this Facebook game app where I was actually giving out virtual currency. So it wasn't on a blockchain or anything, but it was like digital currency. So people were earning digital currency and I was like managing this economy of like a million players that were earning and using this digital currency. And I screwed it up a couple of times. I like hyperinflated the currency <laughs> and ruined the value of our currency. So I I was kind of like coming from seeing 
how people value digital currency and then learning about why gold is important from the Ron Paul campaign and the libertarian group sort of like pushes Austrian economics and kind of like makes you go down the rabbit hole of Keynesian economics versus Austrian economics, which most progressive people typically just accept money as what it is. And they think, well, universal basic income is a progressive policy. So it actually helps people. So let's support the status quo and just take the power away from the central bank to print money. And we'll just start printing money for poor people, which is a really good um, way to think about it. But in terms of the value of the currency, it only it actually it actually sort of causes a lot of suffering in the long run because it will collapse the the value of the currency because it doesn't matter how good your intentions are with a universal basic income that just prints and prints and prints money it devalues the people who are saving so if you believe really in universal basic income if you take it to its end point um it mostly it's mostly going to cause a lot of suffering in an unintentional way because everybody who saves is going to be continually punished. And the only reason, the only way that universal basic income on a, on a, a mass deployed scale will work is if everybody agrees not to save anything and not to, not to have stuff. And like, you know, I think that's probably a better world to live in. I'd like to live in a post scarcity world where nobody suffers and nobody's competing for, yeah, that'd be amazing. Like that's like Star Trek. <laughs> that'd be so cool. But that's not the world we live in. So I do think universal basic income is a great way to end short-term suffering now. Like there's a lot of people like I was living below the poverty line and I would have loved to have some more money for like better clothes and better food and stuff like that. And a nice car instead of driving around in a shit box that was like the wheels are falling off of it. Like literally the wheels fell off, fell off our car one time. <laughs> Thankfully, we were we were going pretty slow, but one wheel, not all the wheels. <laughs> so, so I get universal basic income is is it's a great um, policy to end suffering, and the way that they're looking at it is a good a good way because right now there is universal basic income, but it's only for the zero point one percent elites at the top of the funnel like they get printed trillions of dollars and they get their ubi and their companies get bailed out and everybody else gets you know yeah. in the u.s it's a little bit but in canada it's quite a bit actually for the covid checks the serb checks so it's it's just kind of like a bit it's a bit tricky because i'm trying to be empathetic and i'm trying to like understand where people are coming from and and visceral reaction as a libertarian or a Bitcoiner or a free markets person is to just say UBI is dumb. Anybody who thinks the UBI is the answer is an idiot and like just mute and block anybody talking about UBI because <laughs> if you play it out to its end game, we do live in a world where the US dollar is the reserve currency. And if the US starts to do a UBI for their citizens, actually that's going to um, cause most of the countries that use the, the US dollar as a reserve currency to either have to do UBI themselves or to stop using the US dollar because then it's only the United States citizens that get the benefit of the printing of the money for the citizens. Right now, 
most of the benefit goes to corporations and the elite bankers and stuff, which they all control all the resources anyway. So they're okay with dollars being printed to prop up the stock markets and to prop up the, um, the dollar itself because they all have investments in the US dollar. Like the, the, the United States debt is owned by all the different countries. So they all have a vested interest to keep the UBI going for the rich and for the corporations because if, if they stop printing money, it's going to tank the stock market and we're going to go into a global depression. So we do live in a situation that's really precarious. And I, I really like, I respect the opinion of the progressives who think like modern monetary theory and UBI is the answer because it will end a lot of suffering and forgiveness of student loans is a great idea. That's predatory. It's like causing a lot of wealth inequality for millennials and Gen Z's, especially all those things are great, but I don't have the answer for it. All I know is that it's going to be bad. And if they, whether they take over the the money printer and start printing it for poor people or not, it's just going to keep getting printed. Somebody, whoever's in charge is going to keep printing trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. And throughout history, that's always ended bad. And Bitcoin and things like gold and other scarce assets are ways to protect yourself, like you said, as a shield from these money printers it's the wild card it's the kind of the wild card that no one expected the thing that you just said that i kind of gravitated to was uh, that we have to play this out we don't get to just like do this experiment and then like okay oh yeah you know what that didn't work let's let's just kind of reverse that it's like no 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 you, you don't get to do that you get if you make that decision to do the ubi it's kind of like we got to see where that goes now and i could i could kind of see that like doing the ubi in um in the united states might be the trigger or one of the triggers that starts uh, countries going down the road of, of adopting Bitcoin. Um, because, yeah, yeah, right. Like um, I, I said this thing a little bit ago is like that the US dollar will fail the slowest. Uh, like I kind of think that Venezuela, Lebanon, like they're not, they're not the, uh, they're, they're just the stock, right? They're the tip of the iceberg. They're the countries whose currencies are currently um, on a bad trajectory, but they won't be the last ones. Right. I kind of think it'll be a bit of a domino effect where, you know, America will be like fight tooth and nail to keep on uh, keep their hold on, on the world's reserve. But, uh, you know, eventually all the currencies of the world will, will have to reconcile with Bitcoin in some way, shape or form. That's kind of the you know, we were talking about constitutionalists before. That's kind of the view of gold as the constitutional money for for constitutionalists like they right. believe that. The only legal tender should be gold and silver because that's the way it was kind of written in the constitution when the founding fathers like signed the declaration of independence and created all the amendments and all that stuff it was like they they were using gold as the reference for money because in 2000 and our story in like the uh 1800s there was the continental currency so the first fiat money of the united states was the continental dollar which was like a failed fiat currency because they printed it to death and it got hyperinflated and the and the founding fathers went through that experience and realized fiat money is not good so they went back to a legal you know constitutional form of money of gold so that's the argument that um makes sense historically to use something it doesn't have to be gold it can be bitcoin so yeah i think you're right like as the first as soon as the first big nation or economy starts to hyperinflate and they switch to something it might end up being gold or sorry bitcoin 
it's probably going to be a hybrid, like a basket of other things. Um, but I think it's more likely, unfortunately, like I think the more likely scenario that would happen is that we get like a new sort of Bretton Woods agreement that happens five years or something like that, where all the countries decide to align with their jet, like a debt jubilee, which used to be a thing that happened in previous, you know, I think it was in Rome or something like that, where every so often they would just forgive all debts. And then that kind of needs to happen because <laughs> there's no chance in hell that any of this debt is going to get paid back. Like the United States alone has nearly $30 trillion of debt. There's only $20 trillion of money, like M2 money that exists of US dollars. There's more debt than there is money. So it just, well, how are they going to pay back the debt? Well, they have to print more money. Like it just only makes sense. And that that's going to make the dollar worth less. So all the countries are in a competition to print their money the fastest to avoid hyperinflation and avoid riots and uprisings. So all countries are kind of competing with each other to deflate their currencies. They just like Lebanon and Venezuela are failing because they're doing it wrong. They're printing too much. But every country's doing it. Canada's doing it. The UK's doing it. Like every every country's printing their money as fast as they possibly can because of the way that the debt is denominated, you want to pay it back with money that you can just print. So they can pay countries pay back their debts with money they just print. And then actually like it kicks the can down the road a bit more. So that it actually increases the debt, but the value of the money is less as the time goes by. This is kind of getting a little bit confusing for people that may be following <laughs> it. But the point is no matter what, happens unless all the countries get together and agree to like have some sense and say we're going to stop competing with each other we're going to all do this we're going to all go back to a sound money system or we're all going to forgive it all debts all debts are going to be forgiven and we're just going to go forward with modern monetary theory and ubi for everybody and try to make it work like that i think i think that's probably the alternative to a to a new Bretton Woods is a global depression and World War Three, really. So, like, Bretton Woods was uh, for people who don't know what that is. It was back in I think the fifties or the forties. Uh, yeah, the forties. Forties. When World War Two was happening, and the United States was actually like providing a lot of uh, weapons and tanks and all this stuff for all the countries fighting World War Two. And the United States was like sucking in all the gold from all over the world. And by, you know, the middle of World War II, the United States had control was controlling two thirds of the world's gold because all the countries in the world were fighting world wars and they needed to get, you know, they needed to fund it. So they all had gold and America had this industrial revolution happening. You know, they could provide all the weapons and all the tanks and everything. And they got all the gold. So they all got to, and the countries were kind of like competing with each other and currencies were just going crazy against each other. So they got together and formed the Bretton Woods Agreement, which basically said, we're going to use the US dollar as the global reserve currency, and we're all going to peg to the US dollar. That way we won't be all competing with each other and then we can work together. So we're going to use the US dollar and the US dollar is redeemable for gold because they have the most gold right now. 
And that's kind of where they went forward with the Bretton Woods Agreement. And it kind of brokered peace and ushered in like, you know, peace and all that stuff, sort of. (laughs) (laughs) Ended the world war. But now it's, you know, 1971 happened where Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard. And since 1971, it's just been a competition to print as much money as possible, all countries. So they kind of like voided the Bretton Woods Agreement. And then now we've seen the result of that. Wealth inequality globally has the worst it's ever been. And there's a generational gap for like owning assets and all this insane debt and everything for young people. So there needs to be a new agreement. And UBI and modern monetary theory is what the young generation and the progressives are putting forward. But our stock markets, our global stock markets are just ready to topple. And the dollar is ready to topple. Everything is just ready to blow up Except Bitcoin. Except Bitcoin. <laughs> like, so, so whether you believe the, 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 the philosophical reasons for UBI or not, it's going to probably destroy the economy. If you do a UBI, if they do a Bretton Woods 2.0. Through history, it's like we've got lots of experiences to see how printing money turns out with no caps. It's not good. So I hope they can figure it out. And I want to see a UBI with that doesn't hyperinflate the currency or crash the stock markets to put us in a global depression. But in case it does, I mean, I'm trying to protect myself. And I, that's why I'm an evangelist of Bitcoin. I really believe it's the only weapon that you have against the people that want to redistribute wealth and don't know how to do it. So they're just going to print money and do all these things that are, you know, seems great, but there's a pretty good chance that they're going to screw it up. <laughs> I love what you said there. Uh, it resonated with me really deeply where you said that um, people want to redistribute wealth. So authority wants to redistribute wealth, but they just don't know how to do it. And if I were to add to that, they don't know. Um, oh, man, I had something. It just left me. I'm going to repeat it. So you said that uh, authorities want to redistribute wealth they just don't know how to do it and they also do not know how to admit that they don't know how to do it i think that's the second tier of it because i was while you were saying that i was trying to envision an economy that takes place um solely on bitcoin something like el zonto and el salvador Salvador. Uh, el zonte thank you and you know what does that look like and that took me back to the money bitcoin and time blog that we read by robert breedler where he's he said it, he put it really succinctly that money is solves the coincidence of wants. And um, if Bitcoin is used as the money that just happens to be the, the the tool, the vessel that facilitates this coincidence of two people wanting something, what does that look like? On a massive scale? On a massive scale. Because right now, 1.3% of the world's population has Bitcoin. You know, when is that going to skyrocket? And when it does, we don't like we accept payment in Bitcoin, Brad, you pay and you accept payment in Bitcoin. So there's already people that have been uh, transacting and solving this coincidence of once using Bitcoin. What does that look like on a massive scale is what I'm wondering. I do want to think about this, this wealth distribution thing and tie that into the question that you just asked, Ruga, is uh, uh, you were saying that no one really knows how to do this, this great wealth distribution. And, uh, you know, com- communism, like, 
uh, wealth distribution through through power, like through the authority of the government, is probably a bad idea, right? In why? Why? Because they have to do it through force, right? They they would have to take the money forcefully out of the bank account and put it in other people's bank accounts. And like, who do you choose to put that in the bank accounts of? It's like, who do you take it from and who do you give it to? Whereas with Bitcoin, Bitcoin is the great, great or they wealth, can print more money, or they can print more money and give it to someone. But you still have to choose who to give that money to. Whereas with Bitcoin, it's an individual choice to uh, to redistribute your own wealth or whatever wealth you do have and proportionately rise with with the tides. All all boats rise with rising tides. That kind of thing. It, you have to opt yeah. into wealth distribution that is happening right now, rather than the system that would be from like a top down, like a power based wealth wealth distribution would be. Um, would be through force and, I, and this is through choice. I would say that opting into Bitcoin is more opting into wealth preservation instead of wealth distribution right now. And then the wealth distribution that is a consequence of what what money decides to become known as, that's when the wealth preservation will turn into the distribution of wealth um, as, as a consequence. So what are your thoughts, Brad? Well, you know, it's 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 like the basic libertarian principle, right, of not enforcing any kind of laws on somebody through the use of violence. That's a basic libertarian belief that you, you got to respect property rights and you can't harm another person or their property, but you can do whatever you want and you shouldn't and and they view that taxation as a as a violent act because you're if you don't pay your taxes, you're going to go to jail. And, you know, the those rules and the penalty is jail. So libertarians believe that that is a violent act and that that's infringing rights. So the, the kind of like foundational libertarian principle of like why they're against taxation is because it's a violent act. It has to be enforced by you know, the police and the military and all that stuff. And it's, you know, they say it's better to go back to like the way that it was done before where people voluntarily paid their taxes and helped um, with like church hospitals, I guess, and stuff like that. Some of that stuff I agree with, like at, that's the point where I start to lose the libertarian thing. And I start to feel like there's got to be some system in place that helps people who just won't pay. But I also really sympathize with the libertarian beliefs there because they're right. Like most of the taxes that come in aren't used for that nice, you know, building the roads and all that stuff. It's used for like funding expansionary wars overseas and killing people. So that's that's like you're getting taxed and it's being used to enforce violence. So there is like there is a good moral argument and philosophical argument for not enforcing the payment of taxation just like it's like we're seeing now canada going back into like lockdown at least here in ontario and i got like a message on my phone saying it's the law you have to stay home you're going to be fined if you go out and all this stuff and while i was like one of the first people ringing the alarm bell for covid and buying like emergency food stores and like buying rebreather masks and all this shit because i didn't want to catch covid and all that I really was encouraging people to wear masks and socially distance and everything. And I still do. I think what they're doing is wrong. I don't think they should be enforcing government lockdowns at gunpoint. I think that's ridiculous. I yeah. think that's a violation of human rights. And 
if people, let's say that we're right about this and it is really, you know, not a good idea to catch COVID and you could die from it. I mean, all you really need is about 50 or 60% of the population to like voluntarily do the social distancing and the mask wearing and you will slow down the are not like the the transmission rate of covid to a manageable point where it's not going to be situation so i believe that like enforcing government lockdowns is a system of control and is the wrong response but i also believe that people should wear their masks and socially distance until there's enough people that take the vaccines and you know enough people that um maybe get it and and get immune to it or whatever just achieve some sort of natural herd immunity to this thing or through vaccinations or whatever right um, you're on a you're on a covid rant what percentage of uh of people do you think that need to voluntarily opt into bitcoin and redistribute their wealth into bitcoin for the <laughs> hyper bitcoinization <laughs> I want to like COVID's over here and like want to get us back. Yeah, we'll bring it back. I'll bring it back with okay. the COVID example. But like in, in it's the same because it's the same thing as redistribution of wealth. If if you allow a government to tell you what to do with your money, and if you allowed it a government to tell you what to do with your speech and with your actions, then we know how it ends. It ends in re-education camps and it ends in China style social credit and like the whole population of Uyghur Muslims in in China is 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 like constantly under threat, and they get sent to like Uyghur um, re-education camps. People are just disappearing. Their whole families are disappearing. It's nuts. And you know the social credit system in China is what a lot of the Bitcoiners and cypherpunks and freedom freedom activists and all this stuff want to avoid. Um, so the whole thing about redistribution of wealth, it's like, yeah, if you have a benevolent person that's able to redistribute the wealth, then, uh, sure, let's do it. Let's create a social safety net and let's kind of like suggest everybody pay their fair share so that there isn't suffering, but it's, you know, unfortunately through history, we've got lots of examples of how, when egotistical or megalomaniac people get to power, and they think that they know what they're doing better than you do. They want to use force to enforce their either their taxes or wear a mask or whatever. What um, that turns out bad. So it's a real slippery slope. Whether it's paying your taxes, wearing your mask, or you know saying something political on Facebook and getting your account banned, all these things are a slippery slope. And whether you believe on the left or the right, or whether you believe in anti-masks or anti-vax or pro-masks or pro-vax, you should you should just acknowledge that you should not be able to have your money turned off. Right. And in a system where the government controls redistribution of wealth to enforce expansionary wars or whatever they believe is the right thing, in a digital world where we're going. Like Maruga, you were saying, you use cash a lot when you're young. I use cash a lot when I'm young. When I was young, we don't usually use cash. We don't use cash so much anymore. Uh oh, he's gonna he's gonna pull out a nice stack. You know what? I we just sold a uh, a lamp today on Facebook Marketplace, <laughs> and uh, this is the first time I've had cash in about eight months. <laughs> okay, so coincidentally, well, the trend is 
it's going digital. Like the trend is digital, whether it's Bitcoin or central bank digital currencies. So soon, I I really think pretty soon in the next five years, like we're going to be mostly just using some sort of digital cash and, and regular cash is just going to be so uncommon. It's, it's going to be so out of place because when it's digital, it's so much easier for them to reach into your bank account and redistribute wealth. When True. it's digital and they hold the keys, they can just say, okay, this is what happened in Cyprus. There's going to be a haircut. This happened in Greece. We're going to turn off the banks for the for the weekend. And when we turn it back on, you're only allowed to take out $100 a week and half your money's gone. Sorry, but we have to do this to pay down the national debt or to pay for the COVID policies or whatever it is. Not saying that's going to happen. But if it's digital, that's what can happen. And we've got lots of examples of countries and uh, and government officials who are like saying some pretty scary things about just taking money from people. So Bitcoin is the opt out yeah. of that system. They can't take your Bitcoin. Do you think that they would be able to build a CBDC that just straight up cannot be sold for Bitcoin? Like I think at the end of the day, I can sit at a table at a cafe with you, transfer you some my some of my digital Canadian dollars and like we can still do peer-to-peer -peer transactions, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, certain countries build a CBDC that like just straight up does not interoperate with, uh, with Bitcoin exchanges. Like it'll be I don't, I, I don't, I'm not worried about that, man. I don't think that they will. It's just like cash for Bitcoin. Like they don't know what I'm using my cash for. They wouldn't know what you're using your CBDC for, but you would still be able to like, use a Bitcoin wallet. And so you send me some CBDCs, I send you some Bitcoin. It's not the same network, but you know, it's peer to peer just on separate networks. How can you say they won't know what you're using your CBDC for? Well, when you just put the memo field that I sent, like if I sent you a hundred bucks through the Canadian Lumi app, right whatever on. it is, it's like, I'm just going to say, oh, it was, it was just for a, a writing oh. article or something like that. Like whatever it was, or it was a gift or whatever. And then I'd send you some Bitcoin or you'd send me some Bitcoin on on the Bitcoin network. And there you go. We got we got we've gone around the uh, the rules. Yeah, I, I like the, the whole CBDs thing. Uh, like those levers exist. You use one word in particular that I gravitated to is can. Uh, if that system exists, they can do this. And I would just rather build a system that just doesn't have that capability within it at all or i'd rather oh use, yeah that's bitcoin right like bitcoin has very few levers and buttons like no one has any control over the levers and buttons of bitcoin and i'm saying that like hey okay if we're going to build a cbdc for canada maybe we should think about minimizing the amount of levers and buttons for, so that like because like i fundamentally believe the humans are flawed not on out of their own like malevolence necessarily but like they'll they're just going to make an error eventually you know what i mean and if we build a system we're just smiling <laughs> go ahead no you finished i would think i was uh, done yeah humans are flawed and if we build a system with the levers and buttons available to turn off bank accounts and take money forcefully from the accounts eventually you know on a 200 year time timeline it'll happen what are you thinking well when brad you were talking i was it just popped into my mind um and it's kind of unrelated but i'll say it anyway and i was like wow humankind is an experiment 
<laughs> it is such a big experiment. And I'll tell you why I was thinking this. You were talking about how free speech is something that is written into the Constitution. And you were talking a little bit about that. I'm thinking that, wow, why do we need to write a rule about free speech? <laughs> you know, like I should be able to say whatever I want because I can. But why is there a rule book that says, oh, you are allowed to say whatever you want, by the way. And it just got me to thinking on a tangent of, oh, uh, money, right. You are allowed to use or allowed to send this much. And I think that over time, if someone doesn't think or question this allowance of, oh, why am I only allowed to send $2,000 for e-transfer? You know, because it's it's debit. Like it's not. I'm. It's I'm not like I don't have the money. I'm allowed account. to spend whatever six thousand dollars because my credit card allows me to. So I'm allowed to spend money that I don't have, but I'm not allowed to send money that I do have. And what's that all about, <laughs> right? And it just got me to thinking that wow, we're we're all talking about these rules of what we think we can, we cannot do. And then I started thinking about water and. I was thinking that, wow, you know, you, you would think that you can just drink water. Um, like, uh, and then, you know, without someone saying that, no, you can't drink that water. But that happens. You only get one liter a day. or No, no, no. But in terms of bottling water and like, there being marketing campaigns, they're like, oh, you cannot drink this water. You need to drink this bottled water because it's better for you. And then it, I started thinking about the Lorax with respect to bottled air and like you cannot breathe air. You can only breathe so I was just thinking about control and how uh, how we're talking all about um, the kind of controlled world we live in, where power determines what sort of control one is able to exercise over another. In the in the other episode, Keegan, we talked about a question that, oh, what if the government bans Bitcoin? And we talked about this with Isaiah Jackson too, mm -hmm. like, oh, what if you know, what do you say to people that ask you, you know, what if the government bans it tomorrow? And he said, so what? <laughs> like. Aren't you going to worry why the government is banning this thing instead of just following through and being like, yeah, sure, Bitcoin is banned. Let's not use it anymore. So we just live in such an interesting uh, social, cultural, like control paradigm where we're now talking about, oh, capital control, and control of speech and da 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 da, -da. But we should, in theory, be able to do whatever we want because we can. And, and yet there's a rule book as to uh, whatever country you're in that decides what you can and cannot do. So that's yeah. what like in Canada here, we don't actually have the right to free speech. We have the privilege of free speech. So in the US, they have freedom of speech, but here we have like really it's a privilege. <laughs> so it's kind of when you actually get down to like thinking about the way it works in Canada, it's kind of scary that our rights are all privileges mostly here. Can you draw a distinction between that nuance there? Well, I mean, constitutionally in the U.S., you can argue like to the Supreme Court that the you know you're violating my amendment to free speech, right? You're violating my right constitutional right to free speech. But in Canada, the way it's written legally is like you can't really argue that same thing. If you if you're getting in trouble, say legally for something you wrote online, it's not enforced like that, but it could be because it's not actually constitutionally like in our Bill of Rights or whatever the same level of protection on speech and actually in the uk it's even worse like people are sued all the time for things they say and put in jail and stuff like that for things they say yeah there's a couple of, kind of stories about comedians getting fined in, in the uk because they offended someone in the audience and the worst case of it is like in china where 
you actually are surveilled. And if you post something on social media that questions the Communist Party, like you're going to have people show up at your door and you're going to be interrogated and maybe even sent away to a re-education camp. So that's why, like, I sympathize with the people who are saying, like, these enforced lockdowns are a slippery slope to tyranny and to, like, a Chinese-style system of control, because right now it's a mask, but in a couple of years it could be who you're voting for, mm. depending on who's writing the laws and who's doing the redistribution. Right. So people want to protect that foundational right to choice and vo the voluntarist sort of way of doing things, because that allows least the less the least amount of control and suffering really in the end so with the money it's like you can voluntarily use bitcoin and if enough people are using it it provides the check of people who want to control you right? because if if we you know the number goes up a lot and it sucks in a lot of people a lot of these politicians are going to be owning bitcoin and they're going to want to not ban it because it's going to be worth a lot for them and uh it's it's like good game theory yeah, it is good game it's theory. an it's an opt-in system of fighting against oppression and tyranny and capital controls and all this so i that's why i love bitcoin and the bitcoin community and stuff even though i sometimes get triggered by things a lot of the bitcoiners on twitter say Try to stay balanced on it because it, we're all on the same team here in the end. And most most of us, like pretty much all Bitcoiners have one thing in common. And that's like, we believe in, in just voluntarism and allowing people to do whatever they want. And the fact that like, you deserve the right to protect your wealth. Ah, you deserve the right to protect your wealth. I can't, yeah, that sentence. It's true, but it's just like, wow, it needs to be said. Yeah, it is nuts, eh? Like, but most people don't even know about this. Most people, like, most people don't realize that they're not preserving wealth by holding dollars in a bank account. They think that they're preserving wealth. They think they're saving. They think they're paying off debt. We're, we're in a different paradigm. We're, we're in a different system now. You actually shouldn't pay off your debt. You should take on as much debt as you possibly can and buy Bitcoin with it. <laughs> Not not a hundred percent. I'm just kind of joking there, but like you should take on as much Stand debt on. as they're like <laughs> take on as much debt as they give you at low interest rates because they have to keep the interest rates low. And you're you're basically scamming the bank right now by mortgaging a house at like a two percent rate. Because we know they're just gonna keep printing money. So you're actually paying the bank back in 20 years or whatever with dollars that are worth way less. So you're doing the scam to them that they've been doing to us for years and like generationally enslaving people with debt. <laughs> Now's the best time to like screw that advice to pay off your debts and owe nobody anything. The money's broken. So take take advantage of it. Take on as much debt as you possibly can and just buy real assets with the debt, with the money that you get. Because they have to keep the interest rates low. Otherwise, they're going to send everybody, they're going to send people into a global depression. And if they if they do come together with the new Bretton Woods and you got debt, they may forgive it. That's great. <laughs> so like the game theory of taking on debt right now is great. It's probably the best time in history to take debt on, to, to remortgage your house and use it to buy scarce assets or invest in your business or buy Bitcoin or, or some gold or whatever it is, or even another house that produces income. It's paying off your debt, the idea that you should pay off your debt, save your money and you know, work a job and be ready for your pension when you retire. That's such an antiquated, broken 
thing to teach people because by the time we retire, the monies might not even be dollars. It might not even be US dollars. And for sure, the pension system is going to be bankrupt. It already is bankrupt. The pension system are insolvent. It's just they're propping them up. They're printing right. money to keep it going. It the real Ponzi here is the the pension system, and, and like the idea that you should work a job and get a pension and retire. That's a Ponzi scheme, a generational Ponzi scheme, and Bitcoin is the way to get out of it. So it kind of pisses me off when people are saying, "Oh, Bitcoin isn't that a Ponzi?" Like you're living a Ponzi scheme. You you think your money is a Ponzi scheme? Your pension is a Ponzi scheme. How is the pension a Ponzi scheme? That's the first time I've heard this narrative. Well. You, as a young person, are paying into the benefits of a of a of a pension that you think, when you retire, that you're going to be able to draw out of that of that pension system. The pension funds have to invest the money to because there's such a huge entitlement now. There's such a huge amount of um, money that they they have to owe to the the retiring generation of boomers. Who are the biggest? They're going to be the the boomers are going to be the biggest suck on the pension system, right. ever. Yeah, and the millennials are and the Gen Zs are paying into it to pay for the boomers to retire, because you know they paid as well, but not they paid in in dollars like twenty thirty years ago, and now they're getting they're getting they're 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 getting this. So the the Ponzi is basically. The money, so the the definition of a Ponzi is the people at the top earn payments from the new investors that come in. So it's typically an investment scheme. So you invest as, you know, into the bottom of the Ponzi and the people at the top get their returns from the people at the bottom. And when the people at the bottom stop paying, the whole Ponzi scheme falls apart. That's exactly the pension system. So the boomers are the people at the top and we're the people at the bottom and we're paying into it from our paychecks. You know, if you work a job, a normal job, you're paying into the pension system so that the boomers can retire and they get all the benefits from the young people paying into the system. So not only is it a Ponzi scheme, because if the if the if the young generation decides to stop paying, they, the whole thing will fall apart. So not only is it like pretty much the definition of a Ponzi scheme from that aspect, but it's also an insolvent Ponzi scheme, meaning like most of the pensions are bankrupt because they have to get about a seven to 8% annual return in order to continue like generating enough to meet the obligations that they have for these retiring boomers. And for us too, when we millennials and Gen X, when we retire, they need to have six to seven, 8% returns. When the system was set up, that was, that was doable. Like you could get seven, eight, nine percent in a bank account, just just a savings account. So, it's actually encouraged pension plans to take all this money coming in, funneling in from the new investors, the younger generation, the Gen Zs and the Millennials, to take all this money and to invest it into these pension funds. And the pension funds are investing into different investments to try to grow the money at the six, seven, eight percent rate. So, what they actually have done is taken all that money and invested it into companies like Boeing, like S&P 500 companies. And what Boeing does with that money is buy back their own stock. They don't build new planes and new technology. The, the planes they're building are falling out of the sky. So <laughs> they're invested into these companies like Boeing. Boeing takes that money 
invests it back into their own stock and pumps the price of the stock. So that's why we have PE ratios, price to earnings ratios that are historically high right now at like 100x earnings. So Boeing or companies like that would have to earn for 100 years worth of profits for it to make sense of where it's priced at. So if, so if Boeing didn't have that spigot of free money coming from the new investors through the pension funds to invest into rebuying back their stock, it would be negative 70, 80, 90% stock price. Well, they'd actually have to start doing business. They'd have, yeah, it would have to go back to some sort of foundational fundamental sense. It would need, it would need to make sense. Like the, the whole stock market is like that. Everything is so inflated because of the pension system and because of the Federal Reserve printing money directly into like the banks, which stock then- Stock market scares the shit out of me, man. Like I've it's had nuts. reach out to me and they're like, yeah, have you checked out this stock? And I'm like, no, I haven't actually. Like <laughs> Everything listed on the stock market makes me terrified. Actually, it makes me terrified to put a single dollar in there because I'm never going to, well, I could. I could sell it the next day and get, what, 80 cents back, but uh, I'm not doing it. I'm not well, there's, doing it. There, like, there's a real risk that, and that's what I was saying earlier about a risk of a global depression. If they stop printing the money for the rich people, like if they didn't do the bailout for Boeing, like Boeing got 500, 600 billion or something like that, they should have gone bankrupt. The free market right, would, 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 would say like, let's let the, the game play itself over. There's an end. Like you either succeed and you get the reward or you fail and that was the risk. But they've taken away the risk part. <laughs> it's just, it's just that was, reward. That was the number one thing that pissed me off about 2008. Like when 2008 was happening, I was like, okay, cool. These banks, they failed. Good, right. Awesome. They can, uh, they're corrupt anyway. They're like, you know, not the friendly guy in the block. And uh, now we can let them fail. And then they pumped out this bill. I was like, wait, 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 wait. How's that, how's that make sense? How's that make sense in any, in any way? Because what you just said, the risk, the risk is not there. What is it? Uh, socialized, socialized losses and privatized gains. Privatized gains, socialized losses. Is that, is that the right phrase? Um. Yeah, socialize the losses and, and privatize the gains. Yeah, right. And another one is uh, socialism for you, capitalism for me. <laughs> I don't like that. That sounds bad. Well, that's pretty. Like that's what they're doing. Like the, there's corporate socialism. There's yeah. like so basically that's a progressive statement. It's like they're basically saying like, oh yeah, well you, there's socialism is for us, the company, the elite bankers, and and the the S and P five hundred corporations that are getting bailout money. But it's capitalism for you, so you got to you got to deal with the risk. <laughs> but we're gonna get all this. We're gonna get socialized bailouts and not have to deal with the risk. So the the private and the the thing is, and this is why I empathize with the idea. It's become pretty much intertwined with the pension system. So if they let Boeing fail, it would be, it would be like the Jenga block from the movie, the big short, right? When they're talking about the, the B rated, the B, the triple B rated mortgages starting to be pulled out. Yeah. Once they let a big company like that fail, these bankrupts, this bankrupts like pretty much most of the pension system. Yeah. So once the big dominoes start to fail like that, it's like the whole thing is going to fall apart unless they just try to find a way to either have a new Bretton Woods where we say, Hey, look, it's UBI now. It's modern monetary theory now. We're going to wipe off. We're going to wipe the slate clean. No more debt. Um, it's all about GDP and 
employment rates and we're going to take care of everybody from cradle to grave and everybody gets on the same page and they agree with that. That would be awesome. No suffering. That would be great. But it's unlikely that that's how it's going to play out. And I'm betting that um, Bitcoin is going to benefit from either scenario. Maybe it plays out fine and maybe they are able to switch to modern monetary theory. And even in that situation, there is going to be a lot of people who want scarce assets and real things that have real value. So even in the system where, where modern monetary theory and UBI succeeds, Bitcoin is still going to go to the moon. <laughs> but in the situation where it fails, Bitcoin is going to be like, people are going to run to Bitcoin. So in either situation, I, I can't really see a scenario where Bitcoin doesn't succeed right. unless it becomes 1984 or whatever, where they really do make it illegal everywhere and enforce jail time and really turn tyrannical about people that have anything, any kind of asset. I'd go to jail for Bitcoin. Good man. I'll, I'll, I'll send them to you. <laughs> uh, you know, you. There, there are a lot of Bitcoiners. There, there are a lot of Bitcoiners who would die for Bitcoin. That's crazy, though, to think about it. Like that's that's a lot of. There's a lot of people in Bitcoin who would go to jail or even die for Bitcoin. There's you, uh, there's no altcoins where someone's going to die for their their ICO or something like that. Like there's people who are seriously believe in this almost religiously yeah bitcoin is kind of like a religion tribe you were going to say something yeah yeah um i forget exactly when this was but this is kind of when i turned into a bitcoiner is uh it's more so when i realized that like the source of like if my optimism i wasn't very an optimistic i was not a very optimistic person before i discovered uh like the various or the multitude of rabbit holes with bitcoin Right. I was actually very pessimistic about the future. I was like, okay, cool. Everything's controlled by the banks and the Fed and uh, money controls the world. And then I was like, oh, wait, but like I can choose to decide that the money that they think is money is not the money. I can decide to think that something else is money and actually a huge percentage of the population and an ever growing percentage of the population is voluntarily choosing this with me. And I'm voluntarily, voluntarily choosing it with them. And that's actually what started to give me hope for the future. Like I kind of was like pseudo depressed in a way, right. About the future is like, this is desolate. This is looking really grim. I don't know if I even want to like bring a child into this world kind of thing. Right. But now it's like, okay, we actually have a, a chance to turn this thing around. Maybe I'm, Google, what are you laughing Bitcoin. at? <laughs> well, it's just like, so your answer is that your pseudo depression and, uh, you know, the fact that you didn't want to bring a child into this world is solved by Bitcoin. Yeah, it's cured by Bitcoin. Yeah. Bitcoin yeah. fixes everything. We're going to start a new podcast. It's going to be called uh, Cured by Bitcoin. And, uh... <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. So uh, we've had some really, really fantastic conversations here. And I, I want us all to give our elevator a 30 second pitch for why someone should either consider getting into Bitcoin or buy Bitcoin, but not take it as investment advice. Brad, your go. 30 well, seconds. If you want to uh, hide money from your spouse and avoid taxes, Bitcoin is for you. <laughs> well, Brad, you what? just you just turned like a billion people right there, man. <laughs> and if you want to buy Coke, Bitcoin is for you. Like a uh, Coke. If like you want to, if you want to join a digital Ponzi scam, Bitcoin is for you. If you don't want to join, wait. I'm I'm saying all the dumb things. I'm, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm messing around. 
Oh my gosh. Okay, cool. I don't have a very good sarcasm um, <laughs> detector. Yeah. detector. I was very confused. For like, no, don't, buy <laughs> don't hide things from your spouse. Don't, you? <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't hide things. No. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I pay all my taxes, by the way. I, I, I will take the side of the debate of why, you know, you may not want to pay taxes or all of your taxes or whatever. But because I'm so public, I'm like not taking that risk. I just, and also because my wife has a rare disease and we discovered this a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and like her life was saved by the Canadian healthcare system. And, you know, she needed to get blood transfusions and she has this uh, medicine that she's on every month. That's, it's like re it's like injecting. And this is another reason why I'm a bit of a nervous about COVID because she's immune compromised. She doesn't have antibodies against like normal things that most people do. Mm. So I'm super nervous about COVID because it's, she's one of the people that's like most at risk by it. So that maybe paints my picture of why I'm social distancing so much and recommend everybody do it. Um, but also like, yeah, the, the medicine, the, it's a blood product. It's a immunoglobulins. It's like injecting a new immune system every month. And if we were in the States, that would cost us like $200,000 a year. And I know people that have the same condition as her in the US, then they have to choose between their house or their job or their medicine. And, uh, and they like have to make the choice to like not take their, not inject the immune system for the month because they can't afford it. And, you know, go to work like susceptible to potentially die from catching a cold or a flu because you don't have an immune system fight off anything really. So I'm just like super thankful and lucky to be in a country where we did we didn't we don't have to worry about whether or not like she's going to we're going to be able to afford for her to get her life saving medicine. And that's one of the reasons why I'm completely fine with paying my taxes. I would voluntarily pay the taxes if there was no enforcement because I'm getting the benefit from it. Right. And I think there's like there is enough. I, I really do believe that voluntarism can work. I do. I, you know, that's that's why I don't like to see anything enforced by like violent actions like police or military or whatever, because I do think that voluntarism can work locally can work. So <laughs> I would say to anybody that's maybe unsure about Bitcoiners like or why you should invest in Bitcoin, all the reasons we talked about. Of course, like protect your wealth. It's probably going to go to the moon, even though it's not investment advice, but like it's likely going to go up, continue to go up because of all the things we talked about. You know, there's also probably a tribe for you in Bitcoin. And like that's how we started to work together building Bitcoin Sherpa, which maybe will be out in the next couple of months or whatever, maybe in a couple of weeks, hopefully, whatever. <laughs> but that there is a tribe for you. There is people that believe what you believe and like have your values and stuff. So that's that's what I would like to see people um, learn about Bitcoin in a way that it it's like aligned with their own beliefs and their own values. Um, so yeah, it's going to the moon and uh, <laughs> and all those other reasons. Uh, thank you for sharing. That was a really personal segment of your life brad and quite an impactful story so a very long elevator ride but worth <laughs> being in the elevator for it <laughs> i like that analogy yeah pretty cool keegan do you have a 30 second pitch or longer you want to share something 
uh, yeah, Bitcoin is medicine uh, for people who are depressed about uh, the state of the world and the fact that uh, these megalomaniac corporations, multinational uh, things that are destroying the rainforests and all this stuff, we can take away the money that, uh, that we can take away or degrade the thing that they think is money and uh, transition that into uh, a new power class. Uh, so when we talk about the 1%, uh, there's a new 1% coming in. They're the Bitcoiners of the world and you can be part of it. Anyone can be voluntarily part of this, which is just the best part of it all. So there you go. That's mine. I like that. Bitcoin is is a uh, 1% medicine. That's right. <laughs> uh, Bitcoin, not... Bitcoin is the psychedelic money. Oh yeah, it is. That's that's a, <laughs> that's the next podcast by the way. <laughs> yeah, psychedelic money? Yep. That's actually a pretty cool name. Uh right, my 30 second pitch. Well, I would I would just start with a question because I usually get asked about Bitcoin with a question. I'd say, well, do you want to lose your wealth over time? No. The one that you're working so hard for, do you want to lose it over time? If the answer is yes, then I'd be like, okay, cool, you're good. <laughs> but <laughs> but keep, keep, keep working your job, paying your pension and saving your money in dollars, pay off your debt. You're good. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But, but if your answer is no, then look into Bitcoin because it is, it is your solution to pre- preserving your wealth, period. A very practical and probably the most impactful for the global, like, next billion people that are going to come in. They don't want to lose. They want to preserve their wealth. That is a pretty good feature of Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. I think that the the biggest problem though right now is simply education. Like, oh, you know, you, Brad, Keegan, and I, we've all been down this rabbit hole because there was something that piqued our interest or that there was something that caught us, um, caught our attention, and we wanted to follow Bitcoin down this journey. Uh, for you, it was immediate when you're like digital gold. Yeah, that makes sense. And I would say that some of the context behind you being convinced so easily is from your business and seeing firsthand what hyperinflation can do to currency. <laughs> um, and, and Keegan, like you've had a pretty good turn of events too, because you first bought into Bitcoin because you wanted to get rich. So you came for the gains, but you stayed for the philosophy. That's right. And and that was pretty cool. And man, I actually don't remember what I came for. I actually was introduced because of you, but then I stayed because of the preservation of wealth. It just makes sense. Why, why wouldn't I want to save the... Um, Save planet. my wealth. Oh, preserve my wealth. Yeah, planet's more like you. <laughs> anyway, that's pretty cool. Okay, so let's all go around again and talk about where people can find us. So yeah, Brad. Um, eventually I will be on uh, Bitcoin Sherpa. I'll have a profile <laughs> on Bitcoin Sherpa. So tune in, tune in, and pay attention for for that. Um, but right now you can find me on Twitter at Brad Mills can Brad Mills can. Yeah. I'm crypto Perfect. Keegan on Twitter. Wait, hang on. I okay. actually want to do a quick pitch in for Brad again. Cause I've heard you talk on clubhouse and I, mm. I really love, um, your opinions that you share for questions or whatever you are moderating in whatever group on clubhouse. So you guys should check out Brad talking on clubhouse cause he, he has, a wealth of experience being in Bitcoin for so long. He's Brad, you've been through both happenings, right? Obviously the one last year and also well, the last two happenings. Yeah. When I first was mining Bitcoin, I was getting like 50. I wasn't getting, but I was in a pool where it was 50 block, 50 Bitcoins per block. So in 2011. 
So then it went from 50 to 25 to 16 and a half to now 6.25. So that's four or is that three? Three, three happenings. Three happenings. Four, four different subsidy, block subsidy rewards, but three happenings. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So you're a long time Bitcoiners. You, you have so much experience with the, the cycle that Bitcoin goes through. So definitely worth following Brad for his perspective on why he has stayed in Bitcoin, why he encourages so many people, young, old, just people who want to preserve their wealth, why he encourages them to look into Bitcoin. Okay. That was, that was my pitch in for Brad. <laughs> Brad got a pitch in for Brad. Ruga pitched Brad. <laughs> Keegan's got a pitch himself, but that's okay. No, um, Keegan, you got to pitch me too. Come on. Okay, yeah. Uh, Brad, you're also uh, uh, a fellow Nova Scotian. Uh, we've got our roots here in Cape Breton and in Truro, Truro, Nova Scotia. Um, okay, that's my pitch for Brad. I, <laughs> I, I like it. Yeah, all the Cape Bretoners out there. <laughs> leave me, leave me and uh, Keegan a good review on the podcast app. Yes, being from the East Coast, great. Thanks, guys. I'm the. <laughs> I actually, I actually have had, I've had two people tweet me, like DM me in the last couple of uh, weeks, being like, "Oh, you're from Cape Breton. You're from Nova Scotia. That's so cool." So it, it's kind of neat to see there's a bit of a following in Nova Scotia for Bitcoin. I don't know why, but like the the trust factor is there, right? Like us uh, us here on the East Coast, like I don't trust those people from Toronto, like Vancouver, where they're talking about Bitcoin. But like, but like, oh, Brad, he's he's going. I know him from down the road. He just yeah. lived down the road from me. Like I grew up with him. He's uh, like me. I trust him. Exactly. That's why I think Bitcoin Sherpa is going to be a great tool because people do have inbound in like inborn tribalism or whatever. It's just part of our DNA to like want to associate with people like you. So if we can just amplify as many voices that are just like you, then it'll help with uh, Bitcoin retention. That from, is the, from new coiner to Bitcoiner. That's exactly right. Guys, I, I truly do feel like Nova Scotia has adopted me. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm also a Nova Scotian, please. You're the only and one thank of the you. three of us that uh, has shaken hands with the prime minister. So uh, Well, we don't know if Brad has. Or this no. is Brad, have you no, shaken hands no. with Justin Trudeau? No, I've, uh, that's pretty amazing, actually, that you got to uh, shake hands with the prime minister. What, was he wearing a mask? Oh, actually, this was before COVID blew up. This was last March. Last oh, okay. For a second, or th that's the day that I got my citizenship. So he handed me my citizenship certificate and then shook hands and said, thank you. For being a citizen. Right on. <laughs> my grandparents love Trudeau. So, you know, they would love for me to shake Trudeau's hand. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, and then and then I can say, well, I through through um, <laughs> osmosis, I shook his hand. Wow! Wow! Great, <laughs> Keegan. Uh -huh. Where can people find you? Yeah, we're gonna. Uh, I'm Crypto Keegan on Twitter. Uh, GoFullCrypto.com is our podcast. Yeah, Mugakshi and I co-host this podcast, and uh, that's that's probably the best two places that you can find me. Cool. My name is Murgakshi. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I do lots of stories on Bitcoin on my on my Instagram page. So if you wanted to just have tidbits of your day uh, influenced by something new that you want to learn about Bitcoin from my perspective, then follow me on Instagram. Twitter, I'm still getting a hang of. 
I, I, I can't say things in less than what 160 characters. Something like that. Something like that. So I just stay away from it. But that's that. And yes, the GoPro Crypto Podcast. My name is Murugakshi. Again, M R U G A K S H E E. Yeah. There you go. Awesome. Perfect. Well, it was really fantastic to have this joined episode with Magic Internet Money and GoPro Crypto. And for everyone who's tuned in, stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll do it again sometime. <laughs>